Our study this morning is in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. I'll try to be brief this morning. We have a lot to study. You know, when you and I um, look at our lives with an honest eye, and when we look at the health and effectiveness of the American church especially, there are probably two characteristics that stand out as kind of lacking or deficient. I don't mean to start negatively this morning, but there's a, there's a purpose of this. In, in the average Christian's life, in the average Christian church, there are really two qualities that are, that are kind of distinctive in their deficiency. One would be holiness. Holiness. I, don't, I, I think it's fair to say that the average believer, the average church overall is, is more conformed to the world than it used to be, at least 50 years ago. And, and increasingly, and this is concerning me, more accepting of theology and practice that actually contradicts the Word of God. This is a trend that's taking place in Christianity. It's a trend that's taking place in the lives of Christians. And that's going to be an increasing challenge in the years ahead because many studies are showing um, that, that millennials, the, the generation, I think, two below me, I've kind of lost track, that, that my kids, our generation, is more conditioned by the culture than shaping it and far more accepting of of issues like gay marriage and abortion um, exponentially higher than our generation. So there's a trend that's happening there that's moving away from the Word of God that, that should really concern us. So holiness is the first area of deficiency. The second characteristic I believe that's lacking is supernatural power. Now it's hard to find a time really uh, when the church as a whole has been terribly strong in this area. You have to really go all the way back to Acts, uh, really some of the New Testament, but not as strong as in the book of Acts, where there was a, 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 a visible demonstration of the supernatural power from heaven that was invading the church and pouring out of the church. Now, there have been pockets of this over the last 2,000 years, particularly with the, the Pentecostal denominations, but even they have had their their share of misapplications of this. So when you look at Christians, when you look at the church, there's, there's a strong lack of holiness and there's a strong lack of supernatural power. And, and we even get a little bit uncomfortable with that word supernatural, like it's kind of weird and mystical and we don't want to talk about things like that. And yet we'll watch multiple television shows about supernatural events. Uh, every Marvel movie in the world is about supernatural things coming from the sky and aliens and and New York gets destroyed in every movie, of course. I don't know how they rebuild it so fast. But every Marvel movie, New York gets destroyed. And we watch shows that are called Supernatural or, or whatever. I don't know if you watch those things. I don't even know about them. But, but the point is, we're comfortable with it when we're entertained. But we're not comfortable with it when we're talking about the Lord. And that's an economy that, that we shouldn't be very comfortable with. God is supernatural. He's not of this world. He created this world. So the concept of being supernatural, of having supernatural power from heaven, shouldn't be something that scares us. It should be something that excites us. But what's happening is Jesus is being marginalized. The Holy Spirit's being marginalized. The Word of God's being uh, def- uh, marginalized and kind of pushed down, and that creates a problem. And what's disheartening about this, and the reason I kind of started negative this morning, is that it's not just a need for more holiness and more power. It's the fact that the Lord has so much more available for us. 
than what we would term normal. If we were at normal, I think most of us would be like, oh good, I'm, I'm pretty normal, I'm growing. Yeah, that, that's wonderful, and I hope we all are there. But God has so much beyond normal. And that's what we need to understand, I think, from this passage this morning. Because there's a spiritual principle in Joshua chapter 10 that is so powerful, and it's so far ahead of where I think most of us are. And yet, please hear this, it is accessible and it's available for any believer and any church that's willing to trust its truth. Every single one of us in this room this morning, this principle is available to us. This church has the ability and the opportunity to have God's power work in us in magnificent, unthinkable, far beyond the pale ways if we will trust this truth. Now I want to get right to the text in Joshua 10. I want to read verses 1 to 5 to start. And then we're going to draw some important applications as we go along. Came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon, remember we talked about them last week, had made peace with Israel and were within the land. That the king of Jerusalem feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let's attack Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and they camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Now the passage lays it out very clearly. Israel's crossed the Jordan into the promised land. They captured Jericho. They had the stumble at Ai. Then they captured Ai. They're moving forward. Last week we saw they made a bad covenant, chapter 9, with the Gibeonites. Now they're advancing deeper into the land, and news has gotten around, and the king of Jerusalem is pretty scared. He's intimidated, he's worried, he's fearful because of the victories at at Jericho and Ai. And I believe it's not that they won the victory, I believe it's how they won the victory because he knew that supernatural power was at play. I guarantee you the king of Jerusalem believed in supernatural power because he had heard the stories. And then he's concerned, you see in the verses we read, because the Gibeonites have made a pact with Israel, and they were much greater than Ai. So this is a, a major player. This is a city that's, that's, that's really dominant in the region. So he writes to the, to the other Canaanite kings, and he says, look, we need to get together. We need a summit, because Israel is a problem. And we've got to go, and we've got to attack Gibeon, because they're allied with Israel. Now, couple important details, and I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning because it'll help us understand the text better. But there are some important details here that we need to apply to our lives. And the first one is that as soon as they get confident and comfortable in victory, as soon as Israel kind of settles in, all right, we've captured Jericho, we've captured Ai, we've got this pact with the Gibeonites, we're starting to, to invade the land. As soon as they get confident and confident, uh, comfortable in victory, here comes the opposition. 
Soon as they settle in, here comes not one king, but five. And, and we need to understand that that's how the enemy works. The enemy tries to bring enough firepower to dissuade and to discourage. And we have to be careful that we don't easily give in to that. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times it feels like I'm on a roller coaster. And by the way, I've decided that once you reach 50, the whole roller coaster experience loses a lot of its luster. I don't enjoy it as much, screaming vertically. And you know, now they're even making roller coasters that are like inverted. So you're not at 90 degrees because 90 degrees isn't enough. Let's go to 100 degrees. Let's go backwards down a hill at 65 miles an hour strapped with just a bar. I, I'm, I'm done, okay? Doesn't have the thrill it did at 18. But I digress. A lot of times we feel like we're on a spiritual roller coaster. And, and, and we go down the hill and we get into a spiritual valley and then we come back up and we, we start to breathe and we start to relax and we get to the top of the hill and we're like, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden here comes another hill. Now we can either scream in terror because it frightens us, or we can shout with excitement because we know that the Lord is faithful and he's sufficient, and that by going through the trial, our faith is going to go deeper. Now you say, well, it's crazy. Why would I look forward to a trial? Trials are difficult. Most of us don't feel like yelling and and, and shouting when spiritual warfare and testing comes along. But listen to what James 1 says. Count it all. Tell me the next word. Joy. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. The word trial means the test of love, fidelity, integrity, and constancy. In other words, when your faith is tested, when your, when your commitment is tested to the Lord, whether by His hand as refining or whether by the devil's hand as an attack, when that happens, we're supposed to count it all joy. Now, why would we do that? Because that seems counterintuitive. And yet the next verse tells us, for the testing of our faith produces patience. And the result of that is that we're fully dependent, joyfully waiting, still active, but joyfully waiting. And that makes us perfect and complete so that we'll lack nothing. You know what the meaning of the word nothing is there? Nothing. So that you'll lack nothing. How many would like to lack nothing in their lives this morning. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about material. I'm talking about something more valuable. To be so full of faith, to be so aligned with Christ, to be so full of the Holy Spirit, to be so complete in our maturity that we're content and fulfilled and secure in whatever situation we're in. And you say, well, that sounds wonderful, Paul, but that's a, that's a pipe dream. No, it's not. It's God's expectation for his children. God expects that I, Paul Rhodes, 42 years into this faith, that I will be so aligned with Christ and so full of faith and so full of the Holy Spirit and so content in him and so complete in my maturity that whatever hits, that I'll say, praise God. And the Spirit of God is given to us to equip us to live that way. So what's the enemy going to do? He's going to fight it with all he has. So as soon as they get confident, here comes the opposition. Second, would you notice, as they're attacked in this time of confidence, their enemy uses a, different, a, a, a real interesting strategy. Instead of attacking Israel directly, they try to undermine their friends. 
Now hear this, this is important. This is often how the enemy works. He tries to undercut us and discourage us by going after those who are close to us. And he uses this strategy because he knows that we're emotional beings and that we're vulnerable in our emotions. And listen, the enemy despises love so much and he despises any measure of love in our hearts so much that he will exploit it and go after it and twist it to become a point of weakness. So he, he knows that once we're in pain, that, that we'll be distracted, and that maybe if we're not aligned with Christ, that that'll actually incite resentment in us against the Lord. Now you say, well, the Gibeonites, we saw this last week, they weren't really Israel's friends. They weren't really invested emotionally, and that's true. But they had made a covenant with them. So even though they weren't exactly part of the nation, it was still a group they were working with. It was still a group that they knew wouldn't attack them. So so what does the enemy do? He gets the king of Jerusalem, look back at the text, to go after them. Now at at the very least, that's a distraction. At the very worst, now they're being drawn into active engagement in a battle that they shouldn't have to fight. And this feeds off of our study last week. There are tangential consequences of not seeking the Lord. There are tangential consequences of not obeying completely. Israel never would have gotten pulled into the war. Look at verses 1 to 5. They never would have gotten pulled into the war in verse 5 if they hadn't disobeyed God and entered into a covenant with their enemy. They would not have been part of the Gibeonite civil war. It wouldn't have been in play. In fact, the Gibeonites wouldn't have been involved in the civil war because they wouldn't have had any alignment with Israel. But they had done it. And what that did is that created unnecessary extra warfare. Now this is a very important truth that we need to store in our heart and mind we can limit some of the exposure to spiritual warfare by not engaging what invites warfare. I'm going to say that again. We can limit some of our exposure to spiritual warfare by not engaging in what invites warfare. It doesn't mean you're not going to have warfare. Every one of us as a believer is going to be in the middle of the spiritual battle. But why add on to it? Why purposely do things that are going to invite more warfare to be in place? And that's what happens next. And look at, look at verses 6 to 9 because this kind of explains it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal. Joshua's minding his own business, plotting the next strategy. And here comes word from his new friends, the Gibeonites, who he shouldn't have entered into a covenant with. And they say, they're, they're calling in the, the, the ticket now. Don't abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Because they don't have to take everybody because this is not the Lord's battle. This is the Gibeonites battle. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. Now Israel decides to engage because Gibeonites said, hey, we're in alignment. Our enemy is your enemy, so they're attacking us. You've got to come help us. And they go up. 
They, they shouldn't have had to, but they were in covenant with them. But I also believe the Lord is preparing another opportunity to show his power and to stir his people to trust in him. And I want to tell you, this is the primary action that the Lord employs in our lives. There is really one end goal that God has for every person. It's simple two words, trust me. Trust me. God's end goal for every human being that's ever lived on the face of the earth is trust me. God's goal for every believer who names the name of Christ and says, I'm so glad Christ has redeemed me from sin and delivered me forever and that I have the Holy Spirit. And God says, the goal hasn't changed. You have to trust me. And he says, without faith, it is what? Tell me, impossible to please me. You cannot please me. There's no chance. There's no workaround. There's no extra option. If you don't have faith, you cannot please me. It's impossible. He said, you walk by, tell me, what? Faith, not by sight. Not what's tangible, not what you can hold, not what you can manipulate, not what you can control. You walk by faith. And walking by faith requires the complete yieldedness of my will and the the renunciation of self-sufficiency and what I want and what I can control. So even when we're outside of God's will, like Israel kind of briefly was in chapter 9, the Lord is constantly moving us back toward him. He's showing us the futility of our ways, and he's showing us the wisdom and blessing of his ways. So Israel's learned from Ai. And Joshua, verse 6, look at it, takes his army from Gilgal, and he marches all night to take the enemy by surprise. But, but the reason they're successful is not because of strategy. It's not because Joshua says, hey, look, let's do this. Let's walk through the wilderness at night and, and let's, let's ambush them and surprise them because they won't be expecting us before breakfast. So, so we'll go up. We got a great strategy and, and we're going to win because of this. The, the passage is very, very clear. That's not the reason. It's because of the powerful provision of the Lord. And he says right before they leave, look at it. He says, don't fear. Don't fear. I've given you victory. They won't be able to stand against you. Now, now that verse, verse 8, if you underline in your Bible, underline it, because that verse has full relevance and applicability to our lives as children of God. Do not fear, listen, believer, do not fear, for I have given you victory. Your enemy won't be able to stand against you. Let me give you another verse, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, says the Lord. Now, that verse does not say that the weapons of spiritual warfare don't form against us. In fact, the word there indicates that our enemy builds specific weapons for you and me. There are specific weapons that the devil uses against Paul Rhodes. He knows my weaknesses. He's a student of my behavior. He listens to the words that I say. He watches my body language. He checks my demeanor. He looks at any evidence he can find to to study me and to become someone who can market me. Now, we're seeing evidence of this. We see this exemplified every day with technology. When you click... It's not in isolation. 
Companies like Facebook and Google are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to listen to us, to watch us, to to look at our clicking and our buying habits because they want to target advertising and other intrusive uh, interactions with us. It drives me crazy when I do an internet search, let's say, for a screen, and the next hour I get three ads popping up for screens. I'm like, I don't want ads for screens. I can search for screens when I want to look for screens. But no, everything's tracking. So Paul Rhodes clicked on screens for a church. Well, now I'm getting 10 ads for screens because companies are selling our information. They're marketing us. They're targeting us so they can know how to get to us. Now, if human companies are doing that, and by the way, we're giving them full permission and we're facilitating that by being so dependent on technology. But if human companies are doing that, how much more do you think our spiritual enemy is doing it? I don't know if you saw the interview with one of the founders of Facebook or one of the, the higher-ups in Facebook who quit and said the whole goal of Facebook when they started it was to occupy as much of your time as they can. Now, they're spending millions to do that. Don't you think the enemy is going to look at me and go, how can I drag Rhodes down today? How can I discourage Rhodes? How can I, how can I occupy his time so he's not studying the word of God? How can I distract him and discourage him so he won't call on the name of the Lord and pray? Because I know very well that when a believer calls in the name of the Lord, the Lord answers, and I don't want that. So how am I going to target Rhodes? How am I, I going to manipulate him? But here, listen, it said the weapons are formed against us. But listen to the second part of the verse. They don't prosper. The weapons formed against you won't prosper. The word means to advance and be profitable. So what does God do? He stunts the power of the attack and he stunts the effectiveness and the long-term effect of the attack. And he promises us that he will protect us. How many times has God stopped the attack before it even happens? How many times has he reduced the severity of the attack because he knows we're weak? And he says, you trust me, you walk with me, I will vindicate you. I will establish a righteous defense around you and I will be careful to be, to be protective of my people so when you walk with me, you can be confident of my faithfulness. Now this is where it gets really interesting. And where I believe the Lord's giving us a specific message. Wow, time's going fast. A specific message for this morning, both individually as a church. As we read these next four verses, I want you to really pay attention to the details. All right? And then we're going to take a couple minutes to list out four distinctive actions that the Lord gives to us. Okay? So, verses 10 to 13. The Lord confounded them before Israel... The Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and he pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The Lord spoke to, excuse me, Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. 
So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nations avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now there are four distinctive actions, and again I'll move quickly, that the Lord takes to secure victory here. Three of those actions are unilateral. That means God does them on his own. He doesn't uh, wait for anybody to request it. He doesn't look for permission. He just does three things on his own to secure victory. The fourth one is, is in response to a request and his prayer. So let's start with the first three. Two of them are in verse 10. First of all, he confounds the enemy. He confounds the enemy. The word there is interesting. It means to move noisily. Move noisily. And it has a secondary meaning of confusing and vexing. So what does that mean? Moving noisily. God moves noisily and he confuses vexes. Well, let's, let's put it simply. The Lord scrambles the thinking and the communication of the enemy. The Lord scrambles the thinking and the communication of the enemy. As the enemy tries to get into our mind, the Lord ex- uh, exasperates his plans. He scrambles the signal so the enemy can't get to us. How many think that's really cool? I really like that one. That the, the signal's messed up. And over and over, the Lord shows, here's how much I love you. Here's how much I, I care for you. Here's how wise I am to protect you. Because I'm more powerful than your enemy. How many believe that this morning? That God is more powerful than our enemy. Think about how much wiser he is than the devil. Think how easy it is for him to confound and scramble the signal and stunt the devil's efforts to damage us. If if somebody tries to hurt your child, what do you do? You fight, you fight, you fight. You'll do anything to take care of that. Think about how much more love the Lord has for us. How much more power he has. And if we don't believe that, even though it's proven time and again, look at the the second action he takes in verse 10. He destroys the enemy. And he chases them away. Now that's a very interesting visual image. And it reminds us of the verse that's given to us in James 4, 7. Which says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 9 says that by being firm in our faith, it will be a catalyst for that resistance. Ephesians 6, 13 says when you stand firm, clothed in the full armor of God, that will be your offense and your defense to resist. Now, if we're able to do that, if, if we can clothe ourselves in righteousness and put on the, the full armor of God, and we can stand firm in our faith, and by resisting the enemy, he'll flee from us. If, if we can do that, how much more is the Lord able to make the enemy flee? How much more is he able to overwhelm them in defeat? Third, verse 11, he stops the enemy from retreating back. The, the, the Canaanites are running away. Maybe as they're running away, they're kind of developing a strategy. Maybe we'll regroup in this town and we'll, we'll set up a flank and we'll counterattack and we'll, we'll turn around. We've got to gain an advantage here. And the Lord says, no, I'm not going to give you time to do that. And he bombs them with hailstones. He bombs them. They're, they're running away. What should we do now? And all of a sudden, they look up. And in the sky, they're a gigantic. I'm not talking tennis ball size. I'm talking, you know, the size of maybe 10 feet tall. Giant hailstones start raining down. If you've ever been in a hailstorm, right, it's not fun. It hurts. You, you go, oh, no, my car. 
is going to have dents all over it. They couldn't get out of the way of these. And verse 11 is just a small window of how the Lord gives victory. These hailstones he sends are so powerful that the text says they kill more Canaanites than Israel's sword. Hear this this morning, church. When the Lord deals with the enemy, he doesn't just give a temporary hindrance. He's thorough. Which is why we can be sure that when Jesus went to the cross with your sin and my sin, when he put that sin on the cross and he made a sacrifice for it, and then when he rose again from the dead, that the work of redemption was done. The enemy and sin were completely defeated at Calvary. That was sealed when he rose from the grave. It's over, end of battle. Victory is secured through Jesus Christ alone. And just like these three actions... He chose to offer us the results of his victory. And here's where I believe, let's bring it to a close. Here's where I believe that the Lord is specifically speaking to us this morning. Because what Joshua does next is a direct result of what the Lord did prior to verse 12. Those three unilateral actions on the Lord's part gave Joshua the confidence to ask for something bold and something seemingly impossible. And this is an important spiritual principle that I don't believe, and I don't think I'm being critical, I don't believe we believe this as fully as we should. And if we believe this principle in the way that we should, it will dynamically change our faith and our prayers and our ministry. Having seen how the Lord works, not only in chapter 10, but prior to chapter 10, and all the things that God does, as Joshua looks at all that God has done, he can be confident that he can pray boldly and then to anticipate bold answers. Now, this is the spiritual principle for us this morning. When we look at what God has done, creating us, forgiving us through Christ, offering us redemption, erasing our sin, giving us eternal life, establishing us as adopted children, giving us his Holy Spirit, giving us his word, giving us prayer, giving us praise, giving us the body over and over and over and over and over. As we look at that, because of that, we can be absolutely confident to pray boldly and to anticipate bold answers. Look back at verse 12. There's no way, I I will not believe it, that as Joshua is walking through the dark wilderness, going after an enemy he shouldn't even be fighting, wondering how the Lord is going to win, as he's walking through the dark wilderness with his army, there is no way that he's saying to himself, before this day's done, I'm going to pray that the sun and the moon stop moving. There's no way. That was not the battle strategy. Listen, guys, we don't need a strategy today um, because I tell you what, God's going to send hailstones that are going to kill everybody. And, and when, it gets, when we need a little more time, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the sun to stop moving. Okay, good plan. Everybody on board? You're crazy, Joshua. Like, what? 
wait, wait, what? You're going to ask the sun to stop? It's not possible. Oh, no, that's strategy. Joshua's walking through the darkness going, wow, see how the Lord's going to work. And he sees the Lord work, and he sees the Lord's hand. And there comes a place where he says, you know what? We're going to need more time because God is doing a magnificent work. And because of what has happened prior, Joshua now prays a bold prayer because he knows that God answers prayers that are bold and he answers them in a bold way. Am I using the word bold enough? When you pray boldly and confidently and by faith, guess what? God doesn't go, well, I'm going to give you a little marginal answer. I'll just give you a little bit. How about you you asked for a book? How about I just give you this card? You pray boldly, guess what? God's going to answer boldly. He's going to do a miracle beyond our understanding. So what's stopping you and me, listen now, from, from asking the Lord to work in our lives, in our midst, in miraculous ways? To work in an impossible situation. To give wisdom and leading when we're completely confused. To heal what seems to be an irrevocably broken relationship. To use this initiative that we're going on, not just to get a couple people to church, not just to maybe see maybe one or two kids get saved. I'm talking hundreds of people getting saved. I'm talking thousands of people getting saved. I'm talking this church becoming a place of spiritual influence in the city, not because we want to be big and well-known and promoted. No, we're never going to do that. I don't care if we get to 10,000. That's not going to be our attitude. I want to be a place of spiritual influence where the name of Jesus Christ is raised, where the gospels preach, where people get discipled, where we pray, and where people know they're going to meet the Lord. So we can dismiss this. We can say, well, that's Old Testament, Paul. Lord doesn't work that way anymore. That's a miracle. Come on, we don't see miracles. Can somebody please show me the chapter and verse that says God doesn't work this way anymore? Well, you've got to understand the times and the culture. I, no, I don't go by the times and culture. I don't let the times and culture define what I know about God. Guess what I know about God? I know what's in the Word. And I can't find a verse that says God doesn't do that. I find a verse that says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, doesn't he want his people to believe on him and call on him the way Joshua does? With boldness and confidence and expectation? Come on, we got to start believing what culture tells us is irrational. The, the culture, our, our culture thinks this word is worthless, a joke. Come on, guys wrote it, it's all man. It's thousands of years old. It can't be applicable to you. What are you, what are you. What are you doing on Sunday? Going to church in the cold, sitting there listening to somebody talk about the Bible. <laughs> I, I don't need culture to tell me this is irrational because I know better. This is the word of truth. And the word of truth says, when you call boldly, I'll answer boldly. The Lord has always worked in a way to disprove the deniers and to convince the skeptics. And he also works to confront any doubt in his people and to stoke bold faith. Remember the people Jesus was amazed by in the Gospels? 
Remember what he'd say? I've never seen faith. I've, I've never met anybody that believes like you do. Romans, Gentiles, Jews, doesn't matter. He's not a discriminator of persons. So Jairus says, just say the word. Centurion says, don't come to my house. No, it's, it's cool. I know you're a man of authority. Just, just say it's okay. The woman touches the hem of his garment. If I just could, just could touch him, I'll be healed. God is amazed by faith. Joshua didn't plan to ask the sun to stop moving. And you can look at that, you can deny it, or you can dismiss it, or you can delight in it. And if we need any more evidence, I know I'm late, but oh man, verse 14, we got to do that. If there's any more evidence we need that this is right, and that the Lord's giving you and me and this church a specific calling to be bold in our faith and our prayer and our expectations. Verse 14, read it. There was no day like that, before it or after it, oh, come on now, church, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. There is no way to misinterpret that verse or to explain it away as anything other than what it says. If we're going to throw away verse 14, close your Bible, put it on a shelf, and never read it again, because everything else is garbage. Verse 14 is literal, and it's legitimate, and it's as applicable as John 3.16. It shows the awesome grace of God, who would... I can't believe would even listen to me for a second, but he says, I listen with great love and great interest and a desire to respond. And you understand, Paul Rhodes, that when you call on me, I will listen. And when you call on me boldly and expectantly, I am literally willing to do what is miraculous and what is seemingly impossible. And that's not an idealistic wish. It is a fact. So, we're done. How bold is your faith? How bold are your prayers? Don't allow the enemy now to say, well, he doesn't know your circumstances. Uh, he's, that sounds great, and he's idealistic, and he's able to say all that stuff because he's got the microphone, and you can't argue, but come on. You know what it's like. Let me tell you, I know what it's like, too. I know what it's like, too. And I know the devil's a liar, and I know he's an accuser, and I know he hates this word. And this word is truth. So I firmly believe that God is calling you, and he's calling me, and he's calling this church to next-level faith. And he is waiting, church, he is waiting to show his power. Let's ask him to do that work in our midst. Let's pray together.